Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Mark Vandalo. Mark is on the faculty at Texas A&M University at its Goddard campus. He specializes in Native American history, U.S. military history, and the Gilded Age. And he's written books on the Arikara, in particular, we're going to be t- discussing his book today, Between the Floods, A History of the Arikara. Mark, I don't think we've had a guest on the show calling in from Goddard, so uh, glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was intrigued by your book because uh, last November I had the chance to visit uh, the MHA tribes, the Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara tribes in Newtown, North Dakota, and I had the honor of meeting Chairman Fox. Uh, Mark Fox is the chairman of the MHA nation, and uh, he showed us some impressive things he's doing. The most striking thing was the construction of a series of massive greenhouses that will grow vegetables even in the frigid North Dakota winters. Uh They got uh, investors and perhaps some federal funds, and they're putting that money to good use and inspired by projects that are going on in uh, Holland, I believe, uh, in Europe and so forth. And, And now, having read much of your book, I see that in certain ways, while certainly modern, they're sticking with an old tradition in respect for mother corn. Um, how, how did you become interested in Arikara? Were you aware of these greenhouses, and uh, had you seen that project? And I had uh, I had not seen the project. Actually, this is the first time I've heard about it, and but okay. I'm, I'm I'm excited about that because uh, um, one of the issues that the Arikaras have been, I think, have been struggling with is that they moved away from that tradition. Of, of subsistence, agriculture, farming, growing corn, which was such a vital aspect of their of their culture. I mean, yeah. it revolved around corn. In fact, they were known as the corn people. In in the in the uh, 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 sign language of the Great Plains, you know, the symbol for shelling corn was applied to to the Arikara. So that's how mm. they were known among the plains of of, of uh, among the, the nations of the plains. And so what happened in the uh, 1950s with the construction of the Garrison Dam that flooded all of these fertile lands that they, they occupied where they had their gardens, um, you know, suddenly people had to, as they call it, they had to move up top. And that was not farmland. That was ranch land. So they were more or less disconnected from that. And, and um, so I'm, I'm excited to hear that, that they're doing these projects now with greenhouses because they've lost that connection 
and uh, and and it's it's I think it's part of a of a of a bigger movement that's taking place. I've talked to younger people. I've got some good friends uh, there, and and they're all very much engaged, very much involved in 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 revitalizing. Uh, the Uyghur culture, which is not easy because so much has been lost, right? So mm-hmm. how do you rediscover that? But I think the 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 you know uh, uh, growing corn again. They have many different kinds of corn. Maybe they've learned some of that from the from the Pawnees, who've also kept that. You know, there's some individuals among the Pawnees who kept that tradition alive, and so uh, uh, they 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 managed to secure traditional forms of, of types of corn. And uh, I'd love to see that happen in, in North Dakota. And if the Net- you mentioned the Netherlands uh, as one of the places where they were inspired by these greenhouses, well, that's my country of origin, of course. Right. That's where I'm from. Right. So, uh, so that adds a little bit of uh, yeah, another interesting detail for me. So, An interesting connection. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. As you alluded to, the Rikra used to be up and down the Missouri River. Uh, in fact, the building that houses the South Dakota State Historical Society is designed in such a way to be inspired by the tribe's earth lodges. But it's very much an earthen lodge look and feel built into the side of a hill with a granite facing on the west, uh, which creates several challenges and so forth along the way with having several thousand pounds of dirt on top of your roof. <laughs> Uh, the building's being renovated now as, as we speak and, and we'll be back open into it in, in uh, 2025. But it just goes to the fact that the Urikara are a formative part of South Dakota's history. They were big players. You know, when Lewis and Clark come through in 1804, they meet them. They become involved in a war with the United States in 1823. It's a major event, certainly in the tribal history. They have a role to play in the fur trade and even in the Hugh Glass mm-hmm. saga. Absolutely. Um, and yet they're not in South Dakota today. Maybe as a brief overview, why is that? Um, we have to go back deep into time, really. It's, right. it's like when you look at the Eureka creation story, it's, it's in, in many ways, it's a migration story. Mm-hmm. And that's very typical of, of, of religious stories, right? There's always a movement and it, 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 it symbolizes not only the movement from place A to place B, but it's also a, 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 a religious, a spiritual journey right as they move along they they, they learn more things etc and so um they weren't always in south dakota in fact right. you know the mandans and hidatsas were there probably before them but eventually as they went through this 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 migration ended up at the missouri river uh probably in in nebraska country and then eventually perhaps as a result we don't know for sure but perhaps as a result of of climate change droughts and things like that ended up moving further up north and and got into conflict with the mandans and the dots it basically displaced them and um until until basically the the late 1700s they were they had a presence in south dakota and certainly in in the mid 1700s they were right in the middle of of uh south dakota and, but they were eventually in turn pushed out uh, by the Lakotas. The Lakotas, not so much of the Cheyenne, they were fairly friendly with the Cheyenne Indians, but, but the Lakotas, uh, who had ultimately ended up displacing them and pushing them, as well as the Mandans and the Datsas, further north into what is today North Dakota mm-hmm. at the Fort Berthold Reservation. That's where they ultimately ended up. But uh, for, I would say, for like, well, between around 1500 those dates are always you know 
the, the, it's just guesswork. But uh, around 1500, uh, 1550s, they were in South Dakota and uh, until the, the, the late 1700s. So they had a massive presence there. In fact, there's uh, uh, lots and lots and lots of sites uh, along the Missouri River, especially on the West Bank, where these uh, Arikras uh, uh, lived. Unfortunately, most of those are now inundated by all these, these lakes that were created after you know, the constructions of all these dams in the Missouri River. Right. And so in the 1950s, there was a lot of what they call salvage archaeology done to at least, you know, identify these places and 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 do some basic uh, uh, basic research, basic collection. So we know that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of these locations in South Dakota. So they were fairly widespread uh, all over South Dakota. Right. I think that there's a great deal of archaeological work that's been done in collaboration of making of building the dams, the Pixlon project dams that go from uh, Yankton, South Dakota, all the way up into North Dakota and so forth. Uh, it reminds us, I guess, of all of the, certainly the dams have had a positive influence on energy use and so forth in the region and for the nation, but the, it came with this very high price for certain people. And the Hadatsa, the Mandan, the Rikara, the Lakota uh, paid that price with that. Yeah, in fact, I, I end the book uh, in, in about 1953. I go a little bit beyond it. Yeah. Um, but I, I, that's why I called it Between the Floods, because we're really talking about there's two floods in Arica history. And in 1953, with the construction of the Garrison Dam, when it was completed and, you know, the floodwater started to, uh, to rise and basically covering like at least a third of the, uh, of the reservation, um, that was almost a, a uh, well, I called it a fatal blow, a near fatal blow for the Arikras, as well as the Mandans and the Datsuns. Um, and so that's where I ended the story. But um, I was very much, I'm very much aware of what's going on today with the younger generations trying to revitalize that history, revitalize that culture. And it's very exciting. But uh, I decided to end it there and let that newest, the latest chapter, you know, let the people, the, the people who are doing this work right now, Mark Fox and all of those, you know, a dear friend of mine, Lauren Yellowbird is at Fort Union. Uh-huh. And, and there's many others, you know, uh, Jasper Young Bear, who's, uh, you know, they're all contributing in, in, in great ways and small in, into, uh, into revitalizing uh, that kind of stuff. So uh, that's the story that I think they should tell. They're much better. Right. They could, they could tell it much better than I could. Yeah, well, Mark uh, is a very good communicator. Mark Fox, the chairman, is a very good communicator for his tribe, very impressive guy. Uh, in fact, as I was sitting in his office, he was proud to show me a uh, shadow box, kind of a glass-encased uh, bow and arrow quiver, uh, some leggings and some other things. And I, I pointed to that and I said, where, where did that come from? And he said, well, that was a gift from the uh, movie makers that uh, made the Hugh Glass movie, The Revenant, re- recently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So it was it was Hollywood props, but uh, it was kind of uh, a funny moment when, <laughs> when he recognized or when he said these are Hollywood props, but they go back to evoke uh, the the Hugh Glass story and so forth. Right. Well, it's mentioned that it's interesting that you mentioned that movie. It, it may not have had quite the impact uh, as as that uh, Dances with Wolves had on the Lakotas. Uh, but I, I, I can tell uh, that my friend Lauren Yellowbird was one of the advisors on, on, the, on the film, and, and you could tell that they were very proud. And as I watched the movie, and, and this was perhaps for me most exciting, probably most 
the general audience totally missed this, but is to actually hear the language spoken again. Mm -hmm. uh, the language is near extinction. <clears throat> People are trying really hard to, to keep it alive. And uh, um, there have <clears throat> been collaborations with, with uh, the American Indian Studies Research Institute at Indiana University to help, you know, lesson materials, to develop lesson materials. But to actually hear it in a film was, was fantastic. And yeah. I, I hope it inspires younger uh, um, Arikra uh, folks to, to take up the language and, and, and you know, because right now we're in a situation where most of the, what we call active speakers, the people who can actually speak it, uh, uh, is, is almost gone. There's only the passive speakers. Those are people who can really only understand it when it's spoken. So uh, um, we're, we're at, a, at a really crisis uh, moment in, in that part. But again, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see these new development, developments taking place. And, you know, maybe people are just teaching them a prayer, maybe just a couple of songs, you know, and you can build on that. Right. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Indiana in your book and Parks and Damali and so forth as sources. Uh, and I'm intrigued as you start out the probably the first third of your book is primarily oral histories and the things that were collected late 19th, early 20th century from their oral histories and stories. Can you can you give us a little background on why those were done and the. Uh, the elders at the time and why they provided those stories and those sources to to folks like you who can and us that can use them now. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you have to understand this is a this is a time in in uh, Arikra history where they were reaching the, the low point. Um, around 1900, there were only 300, well, 380, 390 people left out of a population that once. And the estimates differ, you know, uh, but I think a conservative estimate was like nearly 9,000. 8,800 is one of the uh, numbers that floats around. We, we have sources that says like, oh, there were 20,000 or maybe even as many as 40,000. That may be a little bit of a stretch unless you count the Pawnees with them as well. But mm -hmm. um, in, in the early 1900s, they were at their low point. And so a lot of people were dying out, the people with the knowledge, the people who understood the bundles and the bundle ceremonies and the secrets of the bundles. And so the stories were also disappearing. And as kind of a, a, a way to preserve that history and to preserve these things for future generations, uh, um, they were, were willing to share these stories with, with interested people. And uh, people from the North Dakota Historical Society ended up, you know, uh, Orrin Libby was one of the big ones. Um, and they, they, the people gladly shared that stuff. Now there, there, there are some, some, some other parts of it, you know, when they were telling, uh, uh certain parts of these, these sacred bundle stories and, and ceremonies, they, they, they would ask, for example, not to, to share the songs because the songs were actually spiritually significant and important. And you don't just use that trivially. Okay. That could actually have very negative you know, effects, but, um, just the stories and things like that. They were happy to share that, and and uh, they were published. Uh, the, one of the early bundles, actually, the only the first bundle was was uh, uh, published in what 1904. You know, as so so with so many of these oral traditions, um, they were looked at as just like you know this this interesting collection of stories that you know uh, um, 
kind of childish because they're speaking animals and, and all of that kind of stuff in there. And so they, they, they weren't taken serious as for, by scholars. There were some scholars who looked at them uh, a little bit more closely, but other scholars just like, well, okay, well, we, we can't do anything with it. And so um, I think the great contribution that I made with this book, not only is it the first big you know, academic treatment of Arikra history, but also the, the idea that, wait a minute, these stories are not just fancy or cute stories that you tell in the winter time, because that's when these stories would be told. Um, but they actually have a, a historical core to them, many of them, if not most of them, even the, the religious ones. I, I, I firmly believe, although it's highly speculative, and, and, uh, uh, but I believe that there's a historical core to many of these stories. And so um, for today, the significance of these stories for people today is that they, they are in effect themselves little sacred bundles, right? This is a way for them to connect with the, uh, the, the, the storytellers at the time. Four Rings uh, being one, one of them, Star. Uh, uh, there's lots of people who contributed to that. And of course, their descendants are still around. So they still share these stories, although the, the deeper meaning in many cases has been lost. And uh, um, what is so tragic about these stories, it's, it's great that they've been preserved in, in the English language and we can now, you can access them pretty much anywhere on Google and stuff like that. But um, what's tragic is they were recorded at the time, but the, the original recording in the Arikara language is gone. Uh, we yeah. don't know what happened to them and, and maybe mm. they're still in a vault somewhere in the Smithsonian. We, we don't know. They may have been just uh, been tossed and that's a shame because that would have been an, an amazing uh, uh, resource for not just historians but linguists as well to to you know reconstruct the language and, and all of its its details. Um, but then you'd have the story in the original, and we can then translate more accurately because there might be all kinds of errors of translation. Although, quite frankly, I think they were doing a pretty thorough job at the time in in recording these stories, documenting them and translating them. So I feel fairly confident that we have uh, uh, important, important sources available to us. Yeah. I was just very lucky. Well, it was, yeah, lucky, I think it was. Um, although, you know, sometimes they, they say like, you know, luck favors the prepared mind. And, uh, and the realization that hit me one day, like, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute. This, this part of this creation story, that, that I think I know what that is. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm referring specifically to a moment in the creation story when, uh, when the people failed to offer smoke to, uh, to one of the sacred powers. And this is Whirlwind. And Whirlwind gets very angry and then, you know, takes its revenge on the people. You, you've strayed from the faith. You've forgot me and starts killing people. And people are scattered. And in one of the accounts, it says like, well, the whirlwind was a disease. And I had assigned this story, I don't know how many times to my students, because I, I love the story. And there's a, there's a wonderful uh, account by Forings, who is the descendant of one of the earlier priests. And he was the owner of, of one of the tribal bundles which, that tells the creation story. And he explains the creation story. Um, and so, so I always make my students read it. Until I one day, it's like while I'm teaching, I'm, I'm talking about this, this story, and it, it, it just hit me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a disease. What could that disease be that is so devastating 
well, it could be smallpox. That's the, that's right. the only one that we, 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 we know uh, um, has such a terrifying, devastating effect. The only problem is that it's in the historic time. And that suddenly, you know, confused me because we were always taught and, you know, that these were ancient stories. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we should we should look at this, for example, the creation story as an ongoing uh, account that, yeah. yes, reaches deep into the past, but actually also continues into, you know, the relative recent history. So, um, and that was my discovery. And um, I'd already written several versions of the book before. But once I made that discovery, I started looking into these, these oral traditions more closely, the ones that were published, also the ones that came out later. And I was able to see all kinds of things that people until that point, I suppose, had missed. Right. Now, I have to, I, I, I want to make one thing very clear, that when you're working with these texts, um, you know, it's always very speculative. Right? right. We're talking about these events that are, are like, okay, here we have a whirlwind. I speculate that that is, is smallpox, which brings it into the historic period after the uh, um, arrival of Europeans in the Americas. Um, so that's very speculative. But we don't have any, any other evidence of, of epidemic diseases that somehow uh, affected pre-Columbian societies. We don't have any evidence of that. So, so to me, it seems plausible, um, but you never know. So. Right. Well, I think that's a that's a perhaps both a weakness and a strength in your book is that the, that uh, provides an explanation for the uh, a, a group of people who would use metaphor, allegory, so forth to get a sense of what is uh, happening to them, and that reality is beyond the material. Right. And so. They are looking for explanations and and uh, explaining this to their kids, their grandkids, and other generations with what's happened. Exactly, they have to fit that into their cosmology. Pretty much like Europeans, when Europeans, yeah. you know, arrive in the Americas, and suddenly it's like, wait a minute, uh, uh, Jerusalem is not. There's a whole continent out there. Right. How do we make sense out of this whole thing? So they they're trying to to fit that story of this discovery into the the European Christian framework. It's like, oh, with these native people that are there, never heard of, of Jesus. Well, well, maybe they're the lost tribes of Israel, right? So the people find ways to to make that, to make sense out of it. And of course, in the Eurekra tradition, as, as many Native Americans, the Eurekras are deeply, deeply, deeply religious, certainly at that time. Yeah. You know, it, it had to have some kind of spiritual explanation there. Had, and so this idea of, well, we failed to worship properly, this religious declension, mm-hmm. okay, uh, um, that leads to this retaliation by, in this case, then, you know, the sacred powers that send this whirlwind, which I believe is a disease, well, which actually Star and others say is a disease. Uh, to the people, and now it makes sense. Of course, they use the metaphor of a whirlwind because, you know, they don't understand, or they they had no conception of germ theory or anything like that. So they they describe these these uh, phenomenon in 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 metaphorical terms. Right. And by the way, Europeans did that too, to an extent. Oh, sure. Okay. So when when uh, when they when Europeans arrive in the Americas and they they meet. Native Americans who end up doing having all these strange practices like chopping up enemies in warfare. Uh, why would they do that? Why would you? Do, well, uh, they're cannibals. Okay, so Europeans 
looked at Native Americans as cannibals. The interesting thing is that I believe in my previous book before Between the Floods, I wrote a book called The Monsters of Contact. And you find the same kind of attitude, you know, when the when the Spanish meet the Kadoan Indians, the Caddo Indians, who are relatives of the Urikra, and they start chopping them up. They they do all kinds of horrible things to them, cutting off hands, you know, in punishment, cutting off noses and things like that. And the cattle were just also kind of confused, like, what is going on? And guess what? They came up with the same explanation. These are cannibals. So what I believe, and again, this is very hypothetical, right? But what I believe that they were describing is, is actually Europeans who were behaving like, you know, uh, not, non-humans, so they become cannibals. Yeah. So both sides use the same kind of, in this case, the same kind of symbolism. Right. Well, it's a very human thing to, to have your frame of reference and your understanding of the way the world works. And then if something that comes outside of that, you just squeeze it in somehow. You find a way to make it fit. That's exactly. Every culture does that. So let's talk about the whirlwind and the disease. And in, and in the historic terms, um, the smallpox epidemics, which hits them, there's probably three rounds. You talk about 1781, but there's also the... 1837 is a big one. 1837 yeah. is a huge one. And... I suppose it enables the Lakota in some ways to find them in a very weak spot and, and uh, uh, weaken them even take further. Ad- take advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I believe that the 1781 epidemic is, is well documented, at least, you know, uh, um, it, that was all over the United States. In fact, it was during the, the American Revolution. So... So Washington's troops were actually suffering from that as well. Yeah. Uh, Not to the same extent, of course, but um, it reaches the Arikras and and, and the Great Plains and actually goes even beyond that. Um, So so that's fairly well documented. The 1837 one is very, very, very um, famous or infamous, whatever, uh, known. But I believe that the, 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 uh, there is an earlier epidemic and and the very earth, the very first epidemic actually is, is what, 1521, when the Spanish mm-hmm. uh, go into Mexico City, right? The Aztecs are basically afflicted by, by, by smallpox, and, and their empire just disintegrates. And it's likely that that either that one or, you know, with the what's called the Entradas by, by the Spanish, you know, Coronado, De Soto, into North America, that they, they also transmitted diseases. So it's 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 very likely that there were uh, uh, that that these diseases reached the Urikras before, and I bring this I bring this up because and this is also a connection with South Dakota, uh, the fact that uh, um, the 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 whirlwind episode um, is not just an epidemic, but the stories also talk about how um, it scattered people, including you know, and, and it mentions the the Assiniboine, it mentions the the Cheyenne, it mentions the Iroquois, which is really bizarre when you yeah. think about it, because the Iroquois are so so far removed. And I thought, like, well, maybe that was just a, you know, when you read the story, it's like, well, maybe that was just a later edition. Or a, but this is the time when I believe this was the time when the Iroquois were at their their height of power. They were actually getting a lot of of slaves from the Great Plains through uh, uh, intermediary tribes, basically. And, uh, and so then that's when I started thinking like, well, maybe we should put this in the 17th century, the 1600s, this epidemic. We don't know exactly what years, but here's the connection to, and this is the second discovery I made on uh, about, about these oral traditions. The oral tradition then states that Mother Corn mm-hmm. was basically the prophetess of the Eurycras, right? 
uh, she turns herself into a cedar tree and out of the sky comes a, a big massive rock and people, the Eureka people are able to find shelter on, on this tree and on this rock. And uh, for the longest time, I had no idea exactly what that was about. I would, uh, but then suddenly one day, and I don't remember exactly when, it just struck me like, wait a minute, I know a place that has this kind of like rock formation and cedar trees, uh, and that's the Black Hills, mm-hmm. which is, okay, just what, uh, 150 miles west of where the Eurekers were, were living at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I started to, to think, and again, speculation but i was thinking like wait a minute when the smallpox first hit this very first epidemic that is recorded in the in the creation story um the people were just you know in panic people are dying left and right of course other people are trying to get away from all this this disease and 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 misery and but where do you go you leave your gardens behind which are essential for survival well my guess is that they went to the black hills and that's where the story, the connection comes from with, with Mother Corn turning herself into a cedar tree and, and uh, Nishana Nachitaku with Creator falling out of the sky. This is a place of shelter. Now, yeah. why am I bringing this up? Because you're saying uh, um, with the Lakotas. The Lakotas appear in the late 1600s and by the 1700s, they, they're moving across the, the uh, um, Missouri River. And in 17, what was it, 1775, they discover... The Black Hills, or as they would call it, they would rediscover the Black Hills. Um, and as a result, they, they, they basically uh, appropriate that area. And that prevents the Arikras from, in case of another epidemic, from going there. It was mm. a place of shelter, a place of refuge. It's a place where you can find wood, uh, animals, you know, uh, um, all year round, including in winter. You'll, you'll find something there to survive. And after 1775, that, that place of refuge is, is closed off. And what happens then in 1781, there's another epidemic. Yeah. And by this time, the Arikaras are kind of like, not only are they cut off from the, uh, from the Black Hills, but they're basically surrounded by the Lakotas. And then you see that, you know, uh, um, the, the, the degree of mortality and devastation is, is, is even greater because they don't have that safety uh, option, that safety valve of yeah. moving away. And you see, of course, the Lakotas also suffered from, from these diseases and tremendously, but because of their, you know, the Arikras the lived in, in what we call semi-permanent villages like earth-lodged uh, mm-hmm. uh, villages, or I used to, the word towns, uh, the, the Lakotas were more nomadic, so they were able to break up much more easily and quickly and yeah. ended up being uh, able to recover from these, these epidemics much more quickly. And of course, that creates an imbalance of power at the, to the detriment of the Arikras, who are also, and I apologize for this being such a long answer, but uh, um, no, the Arikras are really a confederation of, of like, you know, related groups. Okay. That sometimes have, you know, they, they slightly speak slightly different uh, dialects and stuff. And they're, they're all kind of autonomous. They're, they're, yes, they're closely related, but, but everybody does its own thing. And so when this, this 1781 epidemic hits, you know, uh, you go from 12, uh, 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 in some cases, uh, the sources say 18 different towns, you go down to two or three. 
Yeah. And the survivors come in and in, in form these new communities. And there's a lot of disagreement among the people, among these survivors on what to do next. Should we become friends with the Lakota? Should we, should we fight them? Should we fight the man? Should we, what should we do? And that creates further instability, which turns out to be to the uh, advantage of the Lakotas. Right. So. Yeah, they, they make a choice. Uh, and in some cases, the choices they make are prove to be difficult to live with. I, I was struck by the, there's a table in your book that kind of highlights these different communities or towns or, and their relevant chiefs. If there's a name that's known, I think there's some that's, that you put uh, unknown name uh, by the chief, but it's, it's interesting to see that type of, well, definition and, and um, a fair amount of clarity about who's running the villages, the leading men and so forth. And the, the way they're set up at the time and how that works. And this goes back to, uh, well, the, the title, you know, between the floods and the diseases and the wars and how the fables, stories, creation stories and so forth kind of are points of oral tradition that need to be passed down. I, I was struck by early in the book, you talk, you make this point about the validity of oral histories and you quote, well, Socrates, in a way, or Plato uh, from the Phaedrus, I think. Uh, first mm-hmm. off, right, yeah. well done for that. I think uh, for many reasons that Socrates would understand 17th century tribes better than we would because of Socrates' respect for oral history and uh, suspicion. I mean, it's out and out. He's very suspicious of written things because they can be wrong. <laughs> exactly. yes. Whereas we treat things, boy, if it's written down, even if it's on the most nefarious site on the internet it has a credence that should not be given to it but just because it's written it seems to be more real exactly and it's still in academia i mean uh, um, among historians i shouldn't you know i should be very careful because lots of historians are looking at these oral traditions and take them very you know looking at them very respectfully not maybe not quite as as literally as i do them uh, um, but for the longest time, there was suspicion and uh, about these oral traditions. Can we we trust them? And in the in the late 1800s, there were anthropologists, mostly ethnologists, who were recording these stories, and they were actually thinking about like, well, these could be real histories. Until one of them, Robert Lowy, said like, no, 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 this is all just nonsense. You know, talking animals, we can't take that serious. This is this is just nonsense. And if if there's talking animals and that's nonsense, then how can we take the whole thing serious? So I spent quite a bit of time uh, uh, about that. And by the way, this, this, the, the, the reference to Plato, Phaedrus, was uh, from a philosophy professor at uh, Benedictine College where I used to work. And, and he told me this story. And it somewhat stuck in my mind. Yeah. And uh, at that time, I was thinking more of like what, the problem that we have today, which you've already pointed out that uh, I see that with my students, you know, uh, uh, if it's on the internet, it must be true. Yeah. You know, you go to Google, you think the first three hits, the thir- first three things that are listed, okay, that's what they use as their source. And, you know, uh, um, it's like, no, you have to look beyond it and you have to go, you have to look deeper. And uh, so when I made that discovery, uh, when was it, in the, in the 2013, I guess it was, uh, thereabouts, that wait, there's more to these stories, and it started with that with that uh, whirlwind story. Um, but I looked at uh, so I started looking at 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 diseases, um, you know, 
symbols for diseases among the Caddo, the, the Pawnee, the Wichita, and, and I found all kinds of other things, not so much the diseases, but other things that were that struck me. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait a minute, in, in, in a Wichita story, maybe I'm straying a little bit from, from South Dakota right now, but just to give you an example, in a, in a, in a Wichita story, um, there is a, a, there's a cannibal woman or, or a witch woman who, who captures who steals Wichita children and, uh, and, and she takes them down to, to Texas or at least down south. She disappears in a, in, a, in a mysterious puddle of mud, which is probably some kind of, of lake or a swampy area. Anyways, uh, uh, the, the Wichitas join up with this other group and at one point in that story, uh, um, they come to the witch's uh, dwelling and there's a torture pole that shoots fire and, and rocks. And now being more sensitive, more attuned to like, hey, wait a minute, what, what, what's going on here? It's like a pole, actually they use the word pole that shoots fire and, and, and sounds like thunder and lightning mm-hmm. and it shoots rocks. And I'm like, that's a cannon. Yeah. And then I started looking more deeply into the different characters and, and I found a match. 1758, the, the attack on, on uh, the Witch of Comanche attack on on the uh, um, uh, mission of San Sabah in Texas. Mm, okay. Anyways, it's it's these kinds of, of, of things that made me made me go back to the book that I'd originally written and and look at these stories again. These are Ricker stories, and and suddenly one after another, I thought like, wait a minute, I think this could be this again. Hypothetical yeah. speculation, but suddenly uh, you know a whole new the, the book was went through three v- revisions if not four. Uh-huh. And the last one was like, you know, I, yes, I think I got it now. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure I answered your question. But. <laughs> well, it's, it's all good stuff. And, and, uh, I guess maybe would, and, and this can be a long answer, uh, as well. Uh, this is all very fascinating to me, by the way. So keep it up. But I, I guess I would say it strikes me that we often, and unfortunately, you know, the wounded knee massacre is a massive fulcrum for certainly the Lakota, if not all of the American Indian tribes. But it strikes me as I read your book that, that there's similar pivot points, if not societal fulcrums, um, for the Arikara because of these uh, smallpox epidemics, because of the floods, as, you know, is the fulcrum 1781, is it the 1823 war with the United States, is it the, the Pixlone Dam projects in the 1940s and 50s? Uh, they go through several, not sudden and searing, but long-term searing events. What, as, as fellow human beings, I guess, and maybe in a, taking a step back from your book, what can the typical American learn from the experience of the Arikara? Uh, in other words, when you teach this, these stories to your students and so forth, how is it relevant to them and for a wider American society, what can that, what can the Arikara experience add to that for all of us? Absolutely. Oh, there's so much that, uh, <laughs> that I can talk about. I'll, I'll try to, to limit myself to a couple of examples. Okay. First of all, as I was study, studying uh, Arikara religion, um, um, the interesting thing was, as I, as I started thinking about, you know, their religion, like, is it, is it polytheistic? Is it monotheistic? And and eventually I, I realized it's monotheistic and then you have this, 
this layer, this pyramid of layers of powers, and you end up with humans at the bottom, basically powerless, mm -hmm. trying to get some of that power. So you, but as I was doing that, I, I suddenly, you know, it gave me all kinds of insights in Christianity as well. It's like, oh, wait a minute, this is the this is the meaning of 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 sacrifice. This is the meaning of of you know uh, 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 visions and things like that. You see the parallels. You know, when the Eurycras go up on a hill and fast and in and, and, and order to cry for a vision, right? Uh, um, they, they humble themselves and, and hopefully one of the sacred powers takes pity on them. Uh, uh, well, you know, I'm thinking of Abraham. I'm thinking of Moses. Right. You know, they were also going. And of course, in the in the Middle East context where I teach, it's like, you know, Muhammad goes on mountains and mm -hmm. stuff. But of course, you can't say, just you can't just blurt out, well, he had a vision. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you don't quite know how they would, would feel. But you yeah. see those things. And um, so there's you, you make these connections with students who think like when they, when they first read these this creation story, they think, well, well, this is all just silly, you know, superstition stuff, right? This is just right. not, we can't take more. I don't know how to take this. But as you explain them, and, and Four Rings is... Uh, um, uh, explanation. There's an article by Melvin Gilmore from what 1922 or thereabouts, and it's called the Eureka Book of Genesis, and, and mm. he lays it all out that the story is also about um, uh, this evolution, this growth, this the development of the religion, and it you know there's this uh, the four corners of the universe. They have the, the northeast, uh, southeast, southwest, and northwest, which is slightly different from the Lakotas, which have northeast, southwest. Um, but they, they, they use that to categorize, to, to structure and order the universe. And when you go around that, that, uh, uh, those directions, they end with, with echo. And at, for the longest time, I was like, well, echo, okay, you have, you have plants, you have trees, you have birds, right? So they, they categorize you know, the, 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 the natural world according to like, well, animals of the sky, animals of the earth, and, and but they end with echo, and and one day I realized well, well echo is the ability to um, to repeat, in other words, to echo the word of God, the teachings oh, wow. of the sacred powers, and and that's the highest level of development, and it's, it's you know I thought that was brilliant. Uh, well, actually, I can't take credit for that. It's yeah. it's it's. Borings who really, <laughs> who really uh, tells that story. Um, but then you 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 realize that these stories have so much depth and and I think beauty and you know aesthetics to them. One of the things that I uh, teach is the the idea that if you have those four directions and all of these species and all of these plants, animals, but it can be inanimate objects too. They're they're categorized in that. They're all in balance and in harmony. They're all like, you know, they, they, they work together. And if you fail, this is, the, this is one of the lessons, there's many lessons, but one of the lessons of the Eureka creation story, if you fail to, to respect, or if you, if, you, if you treat one of these elements poorly, then there will, the world will re return to imbalance, to chaos, then there will be a reaction. So when the Eurycras felt like we, we failed to, to worship properly, whirlwind comes. And my lesson is like the Eurycras, to, to the Eurycras, everything is related. Uh, in fact, Forings talks about like how, you know, uh, everything was an embryo when the people were in the earth. And so we're all related. 
to these animals. If we take if 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 pollution is is destroying bee populations today, well, what's going to happen to us then as a species, right? What can what can you know? There is a is a is a snowball effect that could take place that could actually harm us. And this is one of the lessons that I took from the Eureka creation story. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when you when you look at it that way, then you're like, well, they were they were on to something. They're on they to something. Were, yep, absolutely. Exactly. Right. And and we're only now catching up on that. That's oh wait a minute. If we do this, then there will be consequences in the future. Eurekras already knew that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yes, and I suppose they they uh, worked to structure their society so that things would be maintained in balance. And time to time, it gets out of balance due to things beyond their control and perhaps things within their control and they make choices and uh, attempt to keep the balance. So in that way, I, I appreciate that answer and we can take their stories as a, a sign of wisdom for us all. So I, I, I should point out that they don't call themselves Rikra, they call them Saknish, which means people, but uh, yeah, uh, but but they're known and I, I struggled with that as well. It's like, well, should we call them Saknish or Rikra? If I talk Saknish, nobody has any idea what I'm talking about, so I ended up <laughs> Staying with Arikras, so uh, yeah, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a, an amazing journey for me to work with them. I've made lots of friends there, and I hope and I trust that the, the they will appreciate the the, the work and the uh, also the love that I put into that book. You know? Yeah. So, uh, what's been their reaction to the book? I'm not sure because I I do, and this is one of the things that uh, I also address in the book, right? Because I'm talking about these oral traditions and these sacred stories, right? They're very deep and meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in many ways, I'm, I'm trying to rationalize them, right? It's like, oh, yeah. well, here's what this is. Right. And, uh, um, you know, there's always people who say like, well, no, 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 you have to take that literally. And other people who, who, who are like, well, I, I, the reaction I've had most is people who are very supportive and it's like, this is really interesting. And mm-hmm. Uh, and we really like that. It doesn't mean that they agree necessarily, right. but they appreciate that. In fact, working with the Eurekers has been uh, a, a really a lot of fun and, and, and very, you know, rewarding uh, just in terms of, of like, you know, friendships I've made. And and, and um, so it's been great uh, in that sense. So, um, but I'm, I'm still waiting for them to get back to me and say, like, okay, you're wrong about this and you're wrong about that. <laughs> oh, that'll <laughs> and that's come. Great. Yeah. That's, that, that, that's great. That's part of the, the process. This is not the definitive or final book on Eurekra history. I hope there will be many more books to come. So As do I. Well, again, yes. uh, the book is Between the Floods, The History of the Eurekra, and we've been talking with Mark Vandalo. Um, thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you, Ben. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.